Hello, faithful listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Book Study Discussions with the University of Alberta's Tolkien Society, The Last Alliance. Please join us as we discuss the Siege of Gondor and the fall of the Realm of Sauron. It's going to be a pretty wild ride, so hang on tight. I really enjoyed... No, wait, that was last week. So I read all three chapters uh, <laughs> yesterday, so I'm going to think about this and get back to you. <laughs> Uh, my favorite was definitely Sam. I mean, what's not to love about Sam in this chapter, especially? Right? <laughs> Just everything about Sam is my favorite part. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I really enjoyed Gandalf being like, hey, I'm going to tell Mary and Pippin about you leaving so that Sam can have company on the way back and just like ideal <laughs> yeah mm. I liked the um, the bit at the end where it talks about um, the like relationship between sadness and bitterness I thought that was really interesting and I never really thought about about sadness that way before but yeah you can have sadness with bitterness but you can also have sadness without it and that's better, so, yeah. Am I the only one who didn't talk yet? No. No. No, okay. But feel free. I mean, I'm trying to fix my microphone, but like, I guess you hear me a little bit at least, so I'm gonna go on. Um, I was, weirdly struck by the fact that Kieran has a beard. <laughs> I was like, what? You you you're an elf and 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 you have hair as <laughs> on the other side places than your head and okay. Interesting. Okay. And then I kept rethinking of like the big thing we talked about, Maglaw. I think it was Maglaw, still on the beach. And like the, the raft for Gimli and Legolas <laughs> eventually, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that that I think that's a good time to remember that. And yeah, <laughs> but otherwise it was a really cute and emotional chapter, and I, I, I think I was trying to think of like many things to avoid crying. So yeah, I straight up cried last night, which I don't usually do when I read this chapter, I don't think. Um, so that was rough. <laughs> I really like this chapter overall. I like, um, I like the moment when uh, the elves come into the Shire and Galadriel looks at Sam and is like, Yes, you've done excellent things with my gift. And it looks great. Um, and just kind of, like, leaves that blessing on the Shire because you can see, like, how much of herself and her time and her energy and her life she's put into cultivating Lothlorien. Um, and now she's leaving it and it will fade and the last place that that influence will endure is in the Shire. Which makes me sad, but it's also really beautiful. Um, I like the part where, um, 
I like, okay, honestly, I like the entire focus on um, Sam being torn in two. Mm-hmm. In chapters, like, they're just, it's really good. I don't know. I, ha- I have a wide variety of thoughts, but for now, I'm just going to say, um, I like that thematically. Um, and specifically, I like the part where Sam's like, I don't know what to do. And Frodo's like, well, obviously, you marry Rosie, and then you both come live with me, because, like, personally relatable. <laughs> Wait, I'm Rosie in this? Yeah. Yes. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a good thing. <laughs> She's probably the most sensitive. Unclear. Gala, do you have anything you'd like to add? Like I said, I didn't actually read this chapter, so that's fun. I'm just, I'm just here to see y'all, cause, yay, yay, yay. I'm very beautiful, so good choice. He was gonna be shirtless. (laughs) I mean, so close. (laughs) I got dressed like five (laughs) minutes before this. Yeah, that's respectable. It was it was technically before noon, so I'm all good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're doing better than my brother already, so <laughs> he's still asleep. Yeah. Yeah. I um schedules for everyone I think have been thrown off. I um was sleeping in the living room the other day and I woke up at six in the morning and I heard one of my roommates um, say to his gaming friends, well, it's been fun, guys. Um, I'm going to go to sleep now. <laughs> Which is wild. I could never do such a thing. All right. So, I think the evident thing to start off with is um, the recovery of the Shire from Saruman and his ruffians. There were the the recovery of the shire was just it was so hobbitish you know like it wasn't a, it wasn't like a, a a bureaucratic effort it wasn't um a um how can we um make a new epic thing it was just like uh, we're gonna all pitch in a little bit and cozy up our hobbit holes mm-hmm. that makes sense um Anything anybody noticed about the recovery of the Shire? Um, yeah, we can we can take lessons from it for the mm-hmm. the um, post apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so confused. Like plant trees. In what sense? Plant trees <laughs> live sustainably. Help your neighbors. Um, Frodo for mayor. <laughs> like Frodo for deputy. I think Frodo would be a very lackluster mayor if it was a long-term position. Well, yeah, because he's like severely traumatized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also like I don't think he's ever been a particularly flamboyant personality. And I think that's an important thing for running carnivals. I also don't think he'd be very good at, like, 
running things in in general. Even before he went off, like Mary ran his whole house. <laughs> this is true. Hmm. I couldn't even move without all of his friends doing the work for him. Yeah. Like okay. his his contribution was basically, I'm gonna walk there, and I'm gonna take some friends with me. Anyway, y'all have fun moving my actual stuff. Okay. <laughs> Frodo is not a bad planner or a bad overseer. It just doesn't come naturally to him. He would just rather fade into the background. And like, practicality doesn't seem to come easily to him either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. And you kind of like thinking about like those the four hobbits together. Um, like Sam is the person who it's like, we need something done. When you need something done, Sam will do it. Um, Frodo will think idly that he needs something done for a month and then maybe ask someone else to do it for him, which makes somehow Merry and Pippin the well-rounded ones who are like, this needs to be done. I'm going to make a plan and then together with a team, execute it. Mm -hmm. Like, not even after they get back from their adventures and have grown, but right from the beginning. Yeah. They're the organized ones. I love that. We always see them as, like, the goofs, but no. The thing that's interesting well, about this, though... As well. Sorry, go mm -hmm. ahead. Mary and Pippin are both very choleric, you know? They're like, get her done. Um, yeah. But, like, they're specifically, they're marshals of other people. Like, they're leaders of their respective parts of the Shire. And from the very beginning, you see them sort of stepping into uh, this pseudo-princely role. Yeah, and I think a lot of the perception of them as goofs comes more from, like, the film adaptations and the actual text. We discussed that a lot, um, especially in the fellowship when we were talking about it, about how they're really not as goofy and foolish as they seem. They're really well put together for really young teenagers um, well, in Hobbit terms. They're still, they're they're, they're, they're well, still, that's, unlocked, the right? that's the difference between them, right? Like, Mary is an adult, Mary is Sam's age, I believe, or very close to. Um, they're in their 30s. They're past 33. Um, Pippin is... Pippin is actually a teenager. Yeah. It's like the difference between, like, the first year... It's like the difference between the first year, who's not even really 18 yet, and, like, Hi. the fourth year, basically. Just, like, as to, you know, having had responsibilities for themselves in their life. But also in that sense, like, that holds up with your interpretation, right? Because, like, the, the goofiness comes from youth, and in the books, Pippin is really the goofy one. And it's yeah. in large part because he's super young. Mm -hmm. But it's also not even, yeah, it's not necessarily um, the class clown sort of thing. Yeah. It's more just inexperience. Yeah, yeah. On the on the topic of Mary and Pippin and Sam, um, I really like what you see in this chapter where, like, Mary and Pippin have become princes of the Shire. Like, when they walk by, 
or they ride by, everyone's really happy to see them. They're like, they're not figureheads, but they're almost figureheads in that sense. Like you see them and you're glad because they seem larger than life and they're heroes, but they're like your heroes. You like identify with them in that aspirational sort of sense. And it's like, wow, hobbits can be knights too. This is great. Like one of our own community has become this great knight. Um, but, but the actual like important person, the actual most important person in the Shire's recovery is Sam. And in that sense, the fact that it's Sam who becomes mayor and he's one, he's the only one of the five hobbits that we see adventuring or like the six hobbits that we see like at all, including Fatty Bulger who isn't an aristocrat? Yeah. He so, is the most hobbity of hobbits, right? Um, it, well, he, he still, like, has a particular love of elves and things like that. Um, but he, he's much more the salt of the earth of the Shire than, um, than Merry or Pippin or Fatty or Frodo. I think this is... Uh, honestly, though, I think that's debatable. Because I remember how we had this conversation before about how Sam is both the everyman hobbit of hobbits and a genuinely weird hobbit. Yeah. And like somehow both of those things exist. Cause keep in mind that, you know, that one of those hobbit of hobbit aspects that for example, the Bose Baggins side has is a distrust of strangers and a distrust of strange things and foreign goods and foreignness in general. Um, and that's one of the things that Sam never properly inherited growing up with the Begginses. Because you can look yep. at that sense of, um, you know, salt of the earth hobbit, and you're also going to get hobbits like, I don't know, like the old Sandy man that the gaffer is arguing with. Like you have that, that inherent sense of conflict between the new and the traditional. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, like, in some sense, Sam is distrustful of strangers and doesn't want to leave home. Like, he does inherit that, but it's it's tempered by other things and tempered by necessity. That's fair. Yeah. Like, he, he's a homebody. Like, he loves home more than most, um, but without disliking the outside world because of it, something like that. Yeah. Is um, that something along those lines? Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I wanted to mention Sam in this respect because in contrast to like Mary and Pippin's sort of folk hero-ness, um, Sam becomes the most important person in the Shire without ever realizing it. And I think that's really significant because Sam is like the one hobbit of our heroes who isn't an aristocrat. Um, like Sam in some ways mark genuine social change in the Shire. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think that's interesting. I think there's a lot going on there with like how that happens. Mm hmm. Well, let's talk more about 
Sam and his part in the revival of the Shire, right? Um, he's often he's not part of the main um, main renovation project, right? Like he, it, it even says when everybody else is tearing down the the new sheriff houses and using the bricks to fill their hobbit holes, um, he's marching around the Shire, putting a little bit of Galadriel's dirt everywhere and a tree and all that type of stuff. He's busy with his forestry work. I think is still line. So it, it, it's quite evident that he has loves and interests that set him apart from other hobbits. Um, and that's an essential part of this revival project. Um, I think what sets him apart, honestly, is that he's almost like a spiritual caretaker of the Shire. Like, trees contribute to a spiritual sense of well-being. Like, there's that sense of... Um, yeah, yes, restoring the infrastructure so that people have, like, roofs over their head is really important, but it's also important to get people's spirits up, to get them hoping, um, and not just that, but to get them, like, you know, dreaming of a better future. And I think Sam's mallet works really well for that because he's He's replacing something that was lost, but he's replacing it with something new. He understands that, you know, the loss of the trees was a huge loss to the spirit of the Shire. And so he's going and replanting trees because he understands something of the heart of this land and the heart of the people living there. Um, but also I think it's significant that his goal is not necessarily a pure replacement it's not we're going to go back to exactly the way things were before this happened it's we're going to take what was good about that and add some good things that we've learned and we're going to make something better mm -hmm. yeah I think that's a fair way to put it um, I think I think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of what's going on here. But I think an important thing to say within that is um, he's doing that from a place of having been in the Shire and loving the Shire more than anything, right? Um, yeah. He's like, I get the Shire and I want to make the Shire itself even better. Mm -hmm. It's not novelty for the sake of novelty. Not that that's what you were saying. Um, yeah, no, that's not what I was saying. Yeah, but I, I, I think it's it's neat that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, it is bringing some of the wide world into the Shire, though, which yes. is cool. That is the case. Which kind of is representative of Sam in general, right? Like, even even before he ever left, he's the Shire's every man, but he has this interest in tales of the wider world that he wants to keep alive and learn about and remember. So it's kind of coming around full circle. Um, just instead of learning and lore, it's um, actionable now. I think and also thing that is interesting in some restoring the Shire with Galadriel, uh, gift is that in a way he's also being a bit of Lothlorien because Lothlorien will never be what it was 
before because Galadriel had left. And, but in the Shire, the Malon tree is going to be taken care of and is going to like be one of the most beautiful Malon tree ever. And like, I don't know if like it's exactly Lothlorien, but it's also like a way to perpetuate the memory and like like everything that was in Lothlorien, like like an idea of Lothlorien at least, but in another place. And I think that's why like Galadriel is so happy with what Sam de- did because it's not only like she could help him restore his country, it's like also he could help her have her country still there in a way. It's really poetic. I love it. Mm-hmm. I also really like that in contrast to Lothlorien, which was sort of a guarded realm where very few people could ever travel and very, very few people would ever see firsthand that beauty. Um, The Malorn in the Shire is said to be somewhere that people will travel like for a long ways to go see. Like, it's a tourist attraction. Yeah. (laughs) But there's something in that fact that I think is powerful and speaks to the power of Sam's actions and the fact that he is what he's trying to do he's trying to do for everyone uh that idea of planting beauty that anybody can now travel and go see is really nice and is a nice way to carry forward the legacy of the elves who you know have a lot of history with hidden cities and like their beautiful tapestries in um, in caves belonging to the king or um, their trees in a kingdom that very, very, very few non Whereas when you give that to a hobbit to take care of, the hobbit is like, yeah, I really, really care about everyone around me and I want them all to be able to appreciate the beauty of this thing with me. Yeah, he's not only bringing uh, hobbits in the Shire a bit out towards the world, he's also bringing the world a bit in to what was Lothorian. That's true. Yeah, like Sam would be the very last person to say, this is my Malorn tree. Um, it is evidently not. Um, it's just an awesome Malorn tree <laughs> that he happened to have planted. I think which also speaks a lot about um, Hobbit's views of hospitality and gift giving and receiving too. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Like that sense of, that sense of awe that Sam has. Like you give something to Sam and he, he doesn't get proprietary. He's so odd that you've given it to him in the first place that he just wants to share it. Yeah, and like in in some ways, that's a that's a Shire trait too that he's taking and and running with to turn into something really positive. Like they have that weird tradition where on your birthday you're giving gifts to other people. Yeah. Um, and I think there's something there with just how how the Shire works and how communal and community focused it is, as opposed opposed to um, being self centered. 
So here's a question then, because um, that's definitely the case, right? And it's pretty awesome. Um, but they also do have a pretty, um, they do have an emphasis on um, private property and private ownership um, and affirm that and see it as a really good thing too, right? Like um, the fact that the Bagans own Bag End, like the fact that um, the gaffer lives where he lives, right? Um, and and like their their homes are very much their homes. I would draw a distinction there between a certain amount of private property versus personal property. Yeah. Um, where houses are very much viewed as a personal property because they are a basic necessity of life. You need a shelter in which to live. And yes, there's certainly been an aristocratic background where how nice that place is depends on how much, you know, of smelled gold you have. <laughs> but that said, um, like, you don't see renters in the Shire. Yeah, there, there is a no concept landlords. of a communal land in that people don't own the land, but they live in the building and everyone accepts that. Like, <laughs> yep. It, it's not about owning the building. It's about living in the building. Yeah. And that sense of like where you live rather than complex like private property rights, I think you see that sense of community in a couple other ways too. First of all, the fact that, you know, Lobelia technically would own Bag End, but when she moves out of it, you know, she just doesn't anymore. Like Lobelia just kind of goes like, no. No, I, I don't want it anymore. Too many bad memories. You know, Frodo will live there now. Um, and secondly, and probably more relevantly, um, the way that the hobbits rebuild Bagshot Row, right? Like, there's, there's not that sense of... It's done without a sense of this is these people's property and it's their responsibility to rebuild their house. Instead, it's done with a sense of these people need a place to live and their homes were destroyed so the entire community is going to um chip in and help rebuild this block of houses so that each person has a house um the the whole thing about rebuilding the shire is genuinely a community effort where you're going from the resources you have to how they can best be used um, you're not like, yeah, basically there, there's no such thing as being homeless because you can't pay rent in the Shire as it ends up at the end. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a home, it's because it was literally destroyed and everyone will be working together to build you a home until everyone has a home again. Hmm. Yeah, and that's like that's a pretty common sort of way of life, um, and not so much in in my generation, but in um, my dad's generation, or especially my grandmother's generation, um, out in the middle of nowhere in rural communities. Um, you know, nobody's paying rent. It's 
just their their home. Um, and there's a lot of community involvement, helping people with um, just like barns or houses in the event of disaster. Um, barn raising. Like that. That's a yeah. barn raising. A little. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or I'm reminded of a bunch of stories of from like my grandparents and stuff of like when only the one person had a tractor among five families. Right. And then you, you, you take turns using it. <laughs> um, right. And everybody works to get this guy's harvest off and then everybody works to get the next guy's harvest out and, and so on and so forth. Sharing equipment. Yeah. It's, it's by no means uncommon in past generations of rural communities. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent that is also what Tolkien is hearkening back to, mm-hmm. is that yeah. that past yeah. ideal, because he's not he's not really living in that time and certainly not in that place, but he certainly has. I'm not sure if I would say an idealization of it, but a respect for it mm-hmm. that um, allows it to be put forth in his work as this is what we are to strive towards. This is the Shire that everyone wants. Yeah, this is merry old England type of thing. It's a barn that already Yeah, there's this conversation Figuring out she's out. Cool. Um, other points on Sam and the revival of the Shire, other than the fact that um, trees are important. Sophia, do you want to say about something about how trees are people too? Not particularly. Okay. Um, I don't know. <laughs> there, there's a lot of things about like repurposing things and putting them to good use that I really like. Um, like in the shaking up of the Shire and the rearranging of like... It, it, it throws a good solid wrench into the social order. And in some ways it brings people closer together. And I really like that. Like instead of living by herself in this big house that she owns, that's too big for her and being wealthy, uh, Lobelia goes back to live with her entire extended family. Um, instead of living by himself in this house that he owns and being wealthy and having a lot of stuff, um, Frodo invites Sam and Rosie and, you know, in the hopes of also their 10 children into it. So you have the sense of like, this house that is too large for just like a wealthy bachelor or a wealthy, um, um, turned into like still a beautiful space but it's also now being filled out like this is it's it's kind of that sense of like we don't need a mansion for like one person but maybe if your family is a hundred people it's reasonable to have a mansion I guess right Mm mhm like the smiles yeah and there's also, I, I think it's also significant that Bagshot Row is the one that everyone chips in towards rebuilding and make sure those hobbits are taken care of because 
Bagshot Row was like the, you know, <laughs> the other side of the tracks, basically, when compared to um, Bag End or whatever. Was it Bag End? I think so. Anyway, it was like specifically the poorer hobbits live there. And the ones who get like a complete home renovation from scratch. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's, I think that's nice. I think it goes back to what you see with um, Bilbo leaving and coming back and then shaking up the Shire. Here, you have this terrible thing that's happened and it's bad, but also it helps to shake up like both the social hierarchy and in many ways, like the complacency of the hobbits. Um, Cause yeah, that idea of no longer being complacent and everyone chipping in as a community is really significant, especially in light of last week's conversation about the number of hobbits who just sort of like sat by and let this happen. Next, hmm. Turn to um, like everyone working, right? Hobbits can work like bees when the mood and need comes up. Now there were thousands of willing hands of all ages, from the small but nimble ones of the hobbit lads and lasses to the well-worn corny ones of the gaffers and gammers. Um, before Yule, not a brick was left standing of the new sheriff houses or of anything that had been built by Sharky's men, but the bricks were used to repair many an old hole to make it snugger and drier. Um, Great stores of food, of goods and food and beer were found that had been hidden away by the ruffians in sheds and barns and deserted holes, and especially in the tunnels of the law. So there was a great deal better cheer than cheer that you will than anyone had hoped for. It is literally a Christmas story about generosity. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful. I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, shall we continue on then? Yeah. Um, after um, Sam's forestry work, he marries Rosie and moves in with Mr. Frodo, and they have a kiddo. Sorry, I do want to say something before that. Okay. I really love this passage where Sam's like, guys, I want advice. What should I do? And Pippin is like, just throw it and see what happens. And Mary is like, carefully cultivate it like you would a science experiment. And Frodo's like, follow your own heart, Sam. You're wise enough to know what to do. <laughs> and then Sam's like, all right, I'll try and share it with as many people as possible. It's just such a wonderful moment of laying out each hobbit and the differences between them. Yes. I agree wholeheartedly. All right. Um, so um, there's Sam and his family, and there is um, Frodo's sickness and um, trauma is probably a good word. Which one should we talk about? They're both pretty, pretty straightforward. Sickness. I think that, like, first, like, it's not only 
when he got his like stab wound that he has a bad day, like a t- like a bad day, but also <laughs> stop laughing in the background. Um, it's also like the day, like the anniversary of his stab Like, Who is it? How he took the, um, the cat. No! Is that my cat? Uh, there is a cat. <laughs> the cat. You guys can hear better than I can. <laughs> There's so many sounds coming from everywhere. <laughs> I can't do it. So, like, he, he, he has days where he's been, like sick. It's, the anniversary of like when he got stabbed and the anniversary of when he tossed the ring into the fire. <laughs> and, and in the middle of that, I obviously lost my voice. I'm very sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, so I was first interested in the fact that he had the ring into the fire anniversary. And like special, how he would be affected and linked to the ring eventually. Like it's not only that he was about to claim it and like he claimed it for himself. It's also that he, his inside Gollum kind of stuff, like is still very present and hurting at the loss of the ring. Um, and also I found it very interesting that he hides it from Sam. Because, like, yes, like, obviously he, like, the cottons are probably like, oh, Mr. For the sake is just like, maybe, I don't know, like, stress or whatever. Like, they have no idea where he's sick somewhere in March. Like, they wouldn't, like, link the two dots. But Sam would. And, like, I don't know, like, it's both something I very much understand, like, don't show weakness to the person you care most about, but at the same time, it's something I irrationally know it's not a good thing to do, it's like, well, people who know you best and love you most are probably most likely to be able to help you, or at least to, like, care for you, like, for support and, like, bringing you heart being like, okay, I can fix this, but I can't be there with you and understand what, what's happening and what's happening. Anyway. Yeah, it, it strikes me that the fact that Frodo wants to hide his sickness from Sam is kind of because Frodo understands it. Um, right? He knows he's, he's never going to recover fully. He knows that he's, um, the, the Shire has not been saved for him. Um, and he knows that there's no cure, right? And so to let Sam know about it would only be to have Sam worry for no reason, something like that. Uh, it's that Sam's worrying won't be able to help in this situation. So why, why let him know about it? Well, it's also just that he... It's also just that he doesn't want to worry Sam. It's also just that <laughs> sense of Sam is happy and he doesn't want to cast any sort of shadow on Sam's happiness. Mm -hmm. Like, it's coming out of Frodo's inherent and deep-running selflessness. Yeah. 
Yes, I think that's true. And yeah, and so is the fact that he tries to like, he just wants to fade as quietly as possible out of public life in the Shire. It's really sad. It gets me. Frodo is such a gem, hey? What a, what a great guy. Um, I would argue that, like, having so little self-worth at this point is not good. There's no bueno. No, like, Sam's reaction at, at learning, eventually figuring out, wait, so you have those two days you're very bad because of what happened. Why didn't you tell me? Like, I know I can't fix it, but I mean, why would you want to be alone when you're that bad? Like, why would you want to battle that yourself alone when you absolutely can't, when you can't even battle it with your friends alongside you? Like, yes, you don't want to worry your friends, but not saying anything will still worry them first and will not make you better. It actually will make you worse. And like, that's why I really like Sam's reaction to it. And like, eventually Frodo going to the Grey Heaven and trying to find Stolace by going to the West. I think it's like a healthy thing. It's like, yes, like it's a good balance, I think, of like, I don't want to worry Sam, but I can keep being sick and bad or like not trying to find something if I, if I know something could be helping. Maybe they can't help. Maybe it's like he's going to be like just to be less bad on those days, but he'll still be bad on those days. But at least, well, he won't worry Sam. He will get that, you know, like it's like in a very short chapter, you have a lot of aspects of how to, like, how to, like, I don't know how to say that, like, you have different aspects on how people deal with mental health mm-hmm. and what are the consequences with, on them and on their, like, relatives and the people around them, the people who care about them, you know? And I don't know if Frodo took the best route, but I think maybe he didn't took the walk. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It just sounds like someone's tap dancing and it's distracting. That's not me. I, I don't know who the tap dancing is. It's you, Ryan. Is it? Yeah, you have to mute yourself. If you want to slap your phone with your thumbs. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. (laughs) No problem. Um, Yeah, anyway, so I think uh, when it comes to, like, the depiction of mental health in this chapter i think there's something like there's something very real in the fact that they're 
are no, like, there aren't easy answers. Yes. <laughs> yes, part of this is coming from the fact that this is a time before therapy, right? Like, you can... You can see so clearly what Frodo says, like, I am wounded, wounded, it will never really heal, is, is the sentiment of so many soldiers coming out of the world wars. Um, and so, yeah, so in that sense, it does come out of like a very, it does feel like it's coming out of a very particular time and a very particular uh, context. I think there's also something in just there's there's something that feels really um, timeless and complex about it. Uh, or sorry, there's something that feels really timeless and real about it. And I think a lot of that is how um, like how nuanced what's happening is, right? Sam Frodo doesn't want to worry Sam, even though he knows Sam wants to help him. Sam wants to be able Frodo and would rather he knew than he didn't um and I think yeah so so there's that also segueing into a different topic another thing that I really like about this portrayal of Frodo is that he's he's gotten he's been traumatized and he's sad but he's also become wise and that specific portrayal of like suffering as something that obviously doesn't always because we see character examples, but can lead to a particular kind of wisdom is really, really interesting to me. I like the layers of meaning in Frodo's pacifism, like the sense of it as as like wisdom as well as of an expression of trauma um and yeah this this leads me into another point that like the closer frodo gets to leaving um the more genuinely prophetic he seems to get um he says you know poor sam it will feel like that i'm afraid said frodo but you will be healed you were meant to be solid and whole, and you will be. Um, which is, you know, the kind of thing that you can say when you know somebody really well, or the kind of thing you can say when you're really, really certain about what the future is going to hold. When you're just really, really certain of exactly how many children they'll have and what they'll name them. <laughs> yeah, but then, but then you have Frodo almost speaking a prophecy of Sam's life when he's saying goodbye, right? Um, he's like, yeah, he, here are the children, specifically Frodo Lad will come and Rosie Lass and Mary and Goldilocks and Pippin and perhaps more that I cannot see. Your hands and your wits will be needed everywhere. You will be the mayor of course um, and the most famous gardener in history and you will read things out of the red book and collect the memory of the age that is gone. Um, and okay, all of that is gorgeous and makes me cry. The part that strikes me as prophetic is that phrasing, and perhaps more that I cannot see. Implying that this isn't wishful thinking, this is what he in the moment is seeing. 
So yeah. That does seem to be an appropriate way to read that sentence. Um, <laughs> my, my wider point is something something Nienna, something something Gandalf, something something Frodo. Yes. How specific and clear. <laughs> would you like to explain? No, I would I, like you to explain, but that's beside the point. <laughs> I, I follow, I follow. Mm -hmm. There's some sort of far-seeing and some sort of wisdom that sometimes comes out of grief, and that's a very important part of Tolkien's entire legendarium to the point that he has a god, Nienna, dedicated to the concept. Gandalf trains with her. I think like, what she said about wisdom coming from grief um, reminds me of like a psychology video I was watching recently where basically it was an interview of a psychologist and she's saying um, people who've gone through, like who are going through and uh, have been going through uh, mental health issues and problems and like are dealing with that uh, healthily have walked through the fire basically get out with more empathy and so not only like helping them dealing with like dealing with their mental health is better for them so they have a an optimum life like a life live, lived at its best but they also have more capacity to help others from what they learned by the like by battle by walking through this fire of like dealing with mental health and and i think that the modern scientific not literature version of exactly what Tolkien is advertising here. Like, there are some things you can only understand if you've lived them. They have, you have some skills you only develop in, through hard times. And like, yes, you can have the basic skill of that, but the honed skill of empathy may sometimes come only from like having lives through such hard time that you know what a hard time is and you don't wish it on anyone else's. Like a deep comprehension, not only understanding, like rational understanding, yes, that is a bad time, but like your whole being understands yeah. what this person is going through. Okay. Yeah, it's almost that, like, for, so Frodo is set apart in various ways. Um, and through his experience, through his suffering and his pain, that's not going away. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, I, like, it seems fair to say also, like, his knowledge and his wisdom um, in that he, he just can't look at the Shire in the same way 
because of the things he knows, something like that. Um, and that, that too sets him apart um, and keeps him from being, keeps it from being the way it was. Is that, is that something like what you were saying, Eloise? I don't know. Like, I think, like, it's a, it's a good, like, way to explore, like a good thought to explore. But I think what I'm just, I was just kind of emphasizing uh, Sophia's point of, like, the wisdom that comes from the suffering, you know, mm. something, something Gandalf, something, something Frodo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, like, going on, like, what you've been saying, like, um, I don't know, like, I, I, I don't know how to explain, like, on the top of my head why Frodo can't stay in the Shire, don't feel comfortable there anymore because of his grief. Um, I would, like, tentative explanation that I have is that, like, despite being peaceful and, like, having changed and stuff, the Shire still has rules. Like, every community, every society has rules uh, of how to be, like, how to fit in this community, in this group. And, like, Frodo can't follow them. Like, from the beginning, like, at the beginning already, he was a weird person who would take long walks and, like, be interested in poetry and long for adventure. Who longs for adventure in the Shire? Um, Frodo. Um, but, like, now, like, he's set apart also because, like, they don't understand such a grief. They don't expect it. They don't know how to deal with a person who's such in, in a such like in state like of like not like of trauma. And even though they have their own traumas, but like they're not running as deep as Frodo's and It's, I think maybe he walks, he would walk, he expects to be better at Valinor or like to be better understood in Valinor because elves, in a way, understand trauma of <laughs> <laughs> like I haven't read the whole Silmarillion, but the snapshots of it can tell me people in Valinor may understand trauma and like like deep, deep, deep trauma. And um, the Shire does not. And so like, yes, the Shire now is shaped by the by Battle of Bywater, by the years I spent in the Sarumans and Chalky. But now, like, they, they're over it in a way, like not entirely, but like they, they adapted to it. And now they jokingly referring to new role as Sharky's end. Uh, ha, ha. Uh, <laughs> you know, like good joke. Yeah, like they they're making joke about it. They're going forward and yeah, much faster than Frodo is. And 
I think they're not particularly able to understand why Frodo is not moving on or moving as fast as them on. Um, like, they don't even know all of them what he's moving on from. Like, yeah. that's one of the lines, I don't remember where, but like, like Sam is sad because like Mary and Pippin are considered heroes. Sam to an extent is considered a hero even though he doesn't he doesn't know that. But he really sees hope. No one sees Frodo as a hero. No one understands what Frodo did for the Shire yeah. outside of the Shire. And like they could perfectly tell the whole Shire what he did, but I'm not even sure the Shire would understand yeah, how no, big that was because like Mary Pippin, like what we've seen all along the book is that Mary and Pippin and Frodo and Sam had like had this idea of the outside world of what an adventure would be and it got entirely turned upside down by what the outside world is actually what is their place in the outside world when like there's a war going on and they don't barely know how to fight um what a journey to destroy the ring is versus god taking back like a mountain from a dragon you know like like even though like the, the shire is at the point where they can they could try to understand but they would never comprehend even a fraction of what Frodo is going through and that's why Frodo is not able to say that because it will eventually be a relationship that sours and he still loved the Shire deeply he still loves the hobbits deeply but and I think he lives before this uh, relationship sours even more because he doesn't yeah. want to live with a bad memory of the Shire yeah the basic difference between the Shire and like the trauma that they experienced and like what Frodo is going through and still going through is that the Shire experienced something together. Um, it was a community event and they can help each other to recover from it. And yeah, there's, there's someone for everything she's experienced during the occupation of the Shire and that, that time, like, there's somebody else who experienced that with you. Um, for Frodo, there's nobody else who experienced that. Um, except Gollum, who is dead. Sam is the closest, and he experienced it so very briefly, comparatively. Um, like, that's why Frodo can't live with anyone anymore because nobody else has experienced that um, that trauma and I think you're right about the elves um, is there's a sense in which they have a better understanding of that particular experience that Frodo has had um, not necessarily because they've held the one ring but because like their history is full of that same sort of being consumed by objects of power basically it's there's there's a cultural understanding of the ring and how objects like it work that can at least give frodo a bit of a place with people who understand him as opposed to the shire 
where nobody nobody can really conceive of it. There's also, uh, with elves, that sense of being touched by evil in a direct way, or of seeing directly into the mind of evil. Um, that would come from a shared experience. Like, even just in the context of uh, Lord of the Rings, you can think of um, like Elrond, not El- well, not Elrond, what kind of Elrond? <laughs> um, sorry, I meant to say Galadriel, though. <laughs> Um, like Galadriel, who's been fighting a mental war against Sauron's mental power, that idea of a purely internal struggle that you have to fight alone, that's something that someone like Gandalf or Galadriel would understand, but very, very few hobbits and other than Frodo would. I think um, so. I, I think that that's dead on. Um, that Brodo is suffering this alone, um, at least to an extent that it's important. Um, but also, there's a separation in the sense that his suffering is um, he can't recover from it. Right, the Shire. The Shire always remembers it, but they, they more or less recovered and pretty well, as far as I can tell. Um, they had a wonderful spring, after all. Um, and, and, the, and the damage that was done wasn't um, permanent, right? Whereas for Frodo, it, it feels permanent. And, it, and it's recurring, right? Every, every year, as everyone else is recovering, he's still suffering. I think that's another aspect of separation is the permanency of it. I think there's like, in other words, I, I like to put it in like new psychology, modern psychology thing. Like everyone experienced trauma, but Frodo is the only one with PTSD. Yeah, something like that. Like, and it's the thing, like not everyone who went to the Vietnam War had PTSD back. A lot of them did, but not everyone. And like some people who experienced the exact same thing, some went out and went fine. And some went like came back and were like, like had PTSD. And like now that when they hear like firecrackers, they, they they are triggered and they come back to that. And I think that hopefully, I hope, I, I think that in the Shires there's probably little triggers for Frodo to come back to what wearing the ring and battling with that was, except those two dates that that he won't be able to ever escape. Like, yeah. All right. So the remaining things are what? Um, the meeting with the elves and then the final farewell. Yeah. Is there important things to discuss with the meeting of the elves? I don't have anything. We already sort of mentioned that Galadriel we- like really likes what Sam did. <laughs> yeah. 
she gave him the gold sticker of approval. Yep. Um, it's also kind of interesting because the last time we've seen Elrond, we, we only see Elrond and Galadriel riding together twice, and the first time is at, uh, and, and both times it happens is during a sense of, like, you catastrophe. Because the first time is Aragorn and Arwen's wedding, and the second time is, like, the last ship. Yeah. It's super pretty, man. I think it's it's interesting, too, that um, Tolkien takes pretty great lengths to describe the rings that um, I think Galadriel and Elrond are wearing. And yeah. they're also Gandalf. Sorry, Gandalf? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Thank you. And um, and I think that kind of gives, like we were saying, like a sense of community almost. I know it's not the same thing, uh, but with Frodo, like they kind of know his pain a little bit. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. The ring bears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's the the last of the age of of the elves. Not only the elves are gone, but their power as well. Something like that. Also really moved Man. by the fact that that's when we meet the elves. That like even I think it's even before seeing Bilbo's there that Sam's understand. Oh wait, we we're not going to Rivendell. Like, 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 Frodo's gonna not come back to the Shire. I think that's when he he catches on what Frodo's plan was, kind of thing. Yeah. Now that I think about it, um, the descriptions of Elrond and Galadriel, like not just of their rings, but also of themselves are actually quite interesting because there's a lot of symbol, like there's a lot of symbol work happening here. Um, Elrond wore a mantle of gray and had a star upon his forehead and a silver harp was in his hand and upon his finger was a ring of gold with a great blue Velia, mightiest of the three. But Galadriel sat upon a white palfrey and was robed all in glimmering white, like clouds about the moon, for she herself seemed to shine with a soft light. On her finger was Nanya, the ring rod of Mithril, that bore a single white stone flickering like a frosty star. Um, there's not a lot that I can think to say about Galadriel's description, but there's a lot that I can think to say about Elrond's, including the fact that, like, in this one single description of Elrond, you get so much of the history of elves and men packed into one image. Like, that that image of a star upon his forehead is, is so Arendel. That is incredibly Arendel. Like, Arendel with the Silmaril bound upon his brow that becomes a star. Um... So, so Elrond's hearkening back to his dad in that way. Uh, there's the mantle of grey that is both, like, very Dúnedain and very, like, Tuor, Ulmo. Um, and, yeah, and that sense of, like, 
the, the gray mantle of a healer and then like the star on his forehead and a silver harp and the gold ring like you've got you've got all of these symbols of nobility but it's i don't know it's done in a very deliberate way where you have like the ring the harp the cloak the star And it all speaks of like lore and a very particular history. If you want to talk about Maglor again, well, you can read him into the harp if you want. <laughs> also Tuor though. Also Tuor. I find interesting that Tolkien says, like Tolkien tells us, Vilia is the mightiest of the three because like, and he told, tells us that in the Lord of the Ring, because in the Lord of the Ring, like, up until now, I, you can't stop me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think it's barely been hinted at that Elrond had the third ring. Yeah. Um, and the two that have been shown to be powerful are not Elrond, it's Galadriel and Gandalf. Elrond has just been shown to be wise. Like, I'm not saying he's shown like to be nothing, but like, he didn't seem to shine as bright as the other two. Yeah. And then he has the mightiest ring. And I find that interesting. And like, Tolkien is personal, like, he's telling us, like, yes, it's the mightiest ring. And I don't know what he's trying to do with that, like having us being like, why didn't he use it? Or like, how did, or like having, trying to pick our interest and be like, how did he use it? Reread the whole series to know. Uh, or tune in my Silmarillion background to know how powerful his ring is. I don't know, like, you know, um, but yeah, I found it interesting. Yeah. I actually have like a couple theories about that. Um, like, there, there's a more legendarium based one uh, in which, like, Velia is the ring of air and Nanya is the ring of water and uh, Narya is the ring of fire. And, like, if you're associating that with Valar, then, like, air is associated with Manwe, who's, like, the most powerful one. Um, in the actual context of the Lord of the Rings, it's, I think, with when you look at the combination of characters with rings, Galadriel and Nanya have, like, a very powerful defensive capability, and Narya and Gandalf have a very powerful offensive capability. Elrond, looking at his history and his personality and his work in the world, seems to be, like, able to do both very well. And so that's one theory as to why his ring is the most powerful ring. I tend to think the Manway connection is... It's probably, probably pretty on point there. Um, I, like, how, 
would you feel how comfortable would you feel about having like me telling that uh everyone's ring is also about resilience so it's it's also what sorry resilience oh, okay like not only like like it's in like able to not only withstand the storm but also if necessary to go through it you know like this double-sided thing like the strength that allows you to just go through things either as a defensive in a defensive way or in an offensive way yeah i think the other thing like um not necessarily why is the ring of air the most powerful one but why does elrond hold it mm-hmm. um and like i think that's partially that that's a question of like who elrond is as a person right like you've got three rings they're like roughly the same but one of them you can tell is the most powerful one and they give it to Elrond. That one goes to Elrond. He's not the most powerful elf in Middle-earth. Like, he's certainly incredibly powerful. But he's not Galadriel. Um, he's... And it goes to someone, too, whose instinct is not towards war. Right? Um... Like, despite Elrond's time spent fighting, I think what Elrond wants to do, and, like, when you look at, kind of, the accounts of him, even though they're pretty sparse, from the Second Age, like, what he wants to do is set up a place for people to live and be safe. Um, and, like, so the kind of person that you give your, your biggest and most power, your biggest power boost to is a healer, um, and is oriented towards, uh, hospitality, and, um, and that kind of, like, gentle wisdom and protection, even though Lorien is, like, very protected and, like, isolated, and their instinct isn't to go out to war, um, like, you can tell it's more martial, um, and and the, the people of Lorien are fighters. That's not the case with the people of Rivendell. Um, like, Elrond is the kind of person you trust with a lot of power. And when you are some of the most powerful people in Middle-earth who have to, you know, do something about these rings of power, you're like, you know what, who should have maybe that ability to check us which of us is the guy that we want to just be able to step in and say, maybe you should back off. You know what? We want Elrond to do that. Elrond will tell us to back off. <laughs> That's funny. Um, you also you also hit on uh, theory number three, which is now my favorite one, um, as to why this is the most powerful ring. Um and if you, if you assume that the rings are given with some measure of this will enhance the abilities that this person already has, which is entirely reasonable. Gandalf's is meant to, like, inspire hope. It's made for somebody who's constantly on the front lines of a war effort, right? 
Yeah, I know. So why did he get it from Kirdan is a valid question. But anyway, <laughs> Kirdan was just like, I, why do I have this ring? <laughs> anyway, um, okay. Uh, whereas like Galadriel's, the, so the difference between Elrond and Galadriel that I would argue is potentially a difference in their rings that would make Elrond's more powerful is uh, Nenya helps Galadriel with protection and preservation. Um, Velia, on the other hand, what are the two magic things that we see Elrond do implied? Firstly, call the river protection. Secondly, uh, heal, heal Frodo. The only person in Middle-earth who could have healed Frodo the way he did. So if you're then going to argue based on that, which I will, that Nanya is, has properties of protection and preservation, but Velia has properties of protection and healing, that's why it's the most powerful. Yes. Yeah, I like it. The restoration over preservation idea, I guess. Yeah, the fact that healing is like one of the most powerful things that can possibly be done. Hmm. Shall we continue on to um, the last goodbye? Yeah. Yeah. It hurt my heart. It's real I, sad. I had to listen to sad music afterwards. All of the things that Frodo says to Sam are, like, gut-wrenching. Right? Mm-hmm. Every time, man. Every time. Yeah. It's just so pretty, too. Oh, man. The Grey Havens must just be gorgeous. I want to go to the Grey Havens. You will just, just, just this. Okay, Con consider this as consider this as a um, thesis statement of writing a book. Um, and the most famous gardener in history, and you will read things out of the red book and keep alive the memory of the age that is gone, so that people will remember the great danger and so love their beloved land all the more. And that will keep you as busy and as happy as anyone can be as long as your part of the story goes on. You 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 will read out of the red book. <laughs> you, you will read out of the red book and remember the great danger and so love your beloved land all the more. Amazing. I, I'm not trying to say something. The, the words are, I am saying something. The words have come out. Well done, Tolkien. You, you played the game right. You won this round, Tolkien. Sophie is just really excited because our copy of The Lord of the Rings is red. <laughs> Sophie is just really excited because she read a whole bunch of things about, like, um like eco-preservation act inspired by Tolkien if there's something about Tolkien that genuinely inspires people not just to change their values but to actually change their actions and that's fucking rare in media 
media is great at changing your like values but it's not generally good at actually inciting you to action this book is one of the things that has consistently historically actually incited people to action and like some of it is shitty action like for example creating fascist camps hobbit camps in italy that was a real thing um but a lot of it is great action like going out and protesting highway building and saving trees and like there are tons and tons of like hippies and nature protectors who are who who legitimately are like yeah we read tolkien and that made us take action and so thinking about that and reading the sentence is like oh hey that's one of those things that would incite you to action Mm -hmm. that powerful sense of like take action on your love after you've read this red book Nice. Hi. <laughs> You're just really excited. I'm always really excited. It's what I'm here for. I I agree, right? Like, um, it's hard to you can't really read the Lord of the Rings and then just walk away and move on with your day. Um, it's like oof. Well, some people uh, do, but they're wrong. <laughs> yes. It, no, it, it 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 changes you. You know, it is my favoriteest story in the whole wide world which is saying a lot i have a lot of favorite stories it's so All right. i have a lot of favorite stories I, this one is the most favoriteest of them all mr frodo i i try to be to be more, more hobbity um <laughs> It's it's sort of the the book tells you to like do things. It incites you to action, one might say, and it's incited me to be more hobbity. Um, so we've reached the end of the book. Um, I would say take a take a minute. Um, give if this is your first or seventeenth read through. I think it's my fourth read through, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and and think about what most hit you in this last read through and then we'll we'll all get a chance to to say that like in the book of the books as a whole or of this I was thinking ending? all three I, I was thinking all three okay um all three books question is what's our favorite thing ever what hit us the most on this read mm. I think for me, um, it was how uh, that's unfortunate. Rob, you froze. Try again, Rob. Anti hollow it is. Um, so I think the the thing that hit me this time was how anti hollow the the books are like every time you read them there's something new to be discovered which isn't true of a lot of books um, a lot of times you can reread something and you 
maybe have a new perspective on it because you're older. Um, but I feel like very rarely is something so dense that every single time you read it, you actually read something new, you get something new um, from the pages, not just a new perspective. Mm -hmm. I... Okay, please don't cry. I kind of want to thank you all for this read through because like, like it's my second read through, first in English. And like the first time I read it, I mostly read it because I liked the movies and I wanted to read the books, but I kind of powered through because a lot of it went above my head. And having the opportunity to read it slowly, uh, like have, I had to read it like every week, two chapters, but I didn't have to read it as a block of three books and like dozens of chapters. Um, and taking the time to like stop for what is your favorite moment, stop for like the emotions, stop for the poetry, stop for the epic, stop for the layers. Like it's like you thought you were eating a chocolate cake. It's actually much better because you also have fruit and like caramel in it and it's great. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, it's a weird metaphor, but like, and I don't think I would have been able to have so much enjoyment of the books if the book study wasn't there and you guys weren't there to like make the Silmarillion reference and explain all that or like make the jokes about like how Elrond and Aragorn interact like in private and that's like or like go on the fanfic side of like actually that's the that's the canon we have about this character that is very obscure but like and it's hilarious and it's at the same time very like heartwarming and like I like it so yeah like it was a very good read through and I think that it's because of how I Oh, thank you guys for that. Hey, no problem, man. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. I mean, it's going to be a pleasure the next time I go through book study and like do the read through with you guys too. But <laughs> I guess book study next year is going to be the Silmarillion, hey? Yup. <laughs> yeah, wow. Let's go. Hey, um, I'll be back, though. Yeah, you will be. That's going to be time. Um, my favoriteest thing about this read-through was... So I've always appreciated... Tolkien's attention to detail. I've always appreciated the landscape and um, the environment and um, the languages and the history and all that jazz. Um, but I think on this read through, I've appreciated that not only is it awesome, but that's kind of really what makes the story what it is. 
And that you, you might even say that that's what the story is actually about. Um, is it's about the forests and it's about the languages and it's about the, um, all the jazz. Um, it's a, and it's about these little good things. And, and the big story, which is very epic and awesome in its own right, um, is only what it is because of, because of the details. I think that that's been my takeaway. I have two answers to this question because this reread has been both a personal reread and the reread that created my honors thesis. Yep. So I kind of, uh, in terms of the personal reread, none like nothing that went into my academic work. Um, I. Frodo's character meant a lot more to me on this reread than he ever has in the past. Um, like, he's always been some level of remark, like unremarkable or overshadowed by other characters when I've read The Lord of the Rings before. Uh, but on this reread, like, Frodo, Frodo made me feel incredibly seen. Um... <laughs> I related to like so much about him and there were so many little things that struck me as incredibly deep characterization and basically as of this reread I am a hardcore Frodo stan. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the, the second thing is what inspired my academic work and it's that previously reading Lord of the Rings most of the time like I would I didn't pay that much attention to the landscape description. Like even if I tried to, because it was pretty, I would still on some level mentally skim over it. Uh, but then I took an eco-criticism class and then I realized that um, you can get so much out of these books if you're just paying attention to the landscape description. Um, and so the other really huge thing that I got out of them on this reread is like, an ecological politics of like radical care for every living thing as a person is something that's in the worldview of these books and is now something that means a lot to me. So, yeah, also like specifically Radical care based in humility. Yeah. Trees are people. Done. Hmm. <laughs> I'm still thinking. <laughs> yeah, and, and Tristan, Katie, Jordan, if you have something great, if you don't, no worries. Sure, I'll talk. I uh, First of all, I share all of Eloise's sentiments. Um, I'm really grateful that you guys were able to include me in your group. And, and um, I for next, for next year, I will do some more research beforehand so I have more to contribute. Um, I know that I wasn't so much of a conversationalist this time, so I'm sorry for that. But thank you for enlightening me. Uh, this is my... I hesitate to call it my second read through because the first time I read them, 
I might have even just read the first one. Uh, was when I was probably too young to read them. Uh, and I didn't appreciate them. So um, this is kind of my first read-through, I guess. Uh, and yeah, I, I enjoyed going through them a lot slower and having you guys to, to talk about them with and enlighten me on uh, that stuff. I appreciated the how when Tolkien wants to get a message across, he does it. Like, he puts it in somebody's mouth, and somebody says it, and there's your message. That's that's it. Um, which is something that's, like, really bold, and, and I can appreciate that. Because um, I know a lot of the times when you're looking for the moral of a story or whatnot, you sort of have to look around and, okay, this person did this. and But with Tolkien, it's, no, it's right there. It's in Frodo's mouth. That's what it is. Um, so, yeah, I like I liked that about it overall see the thing about next year's is that next year is the research Katie. yeah the, <laughs> the, the reason that we all had other things to say is just that we'd read this film really in like recently very recently there we go so okay. next, you don't you don't have to do the research next year the reading is the research perfect and then when you come back around to the lord of the rings you'll have so much background nice gonna be wild because i'm rereading the silmarillion right now in a methodical way with a friend so i'm gonna like finish that and then immediately go into methodically rereading the silmarillion chapter by chapter with friends again matt reading the four months reading the lord of the rings after reading the silmarillion it's like reading the lord of the rings for the first time like it's an entirely different book it's it's phenomenal Oh, you speak okay, speaking of the Silver Island, sorry, I really want to say this. You know that bit where uh things that I know now, that bit in this last chapter that we just read where it's like, um, the the downfall of the return of or sorry, the downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King, um, put together with some notes that Bilbo translated in Rivendell or whatever. That's the Silmarillion. That's well, kind of the appendices. It, it might be the appendices, but in the original conception, that's the Silmarillion, because Tolkien wanted the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion published back to back. What a legend. <laughs> Absolute mad lad. What she said, Ryan, of like about like reading the Lord of the Rings after reading the Silmarillion makes me very happy. I joined book study at the time I joined book study <laughs> because I, I missed the Hobbit. But had I joined one year earlier, I would have started with the Silmarillion <laughs> and not have enjoyment of not knowing the Silmarillion fully, except through fanfiction and what Sophia is telling about me about it, <laughs> <laughs> and what I figure out from memes um, uh, when I read the, the Lord of the Ring. And like, as much as I'm excited to eventually go on the other side and understand all the like references that are like in the Lord of the Ring for the Silmarillion, I'm also super happy I got like the experience of reading the Lord of the Ring was just like, oh my god, it's so poetic. And then like Sophia is like, but there's so much more. And I'm like, ah <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of being like like and 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 then 
I know that the next time I read it, I will read it and I'll be like, oh, it's this reference. It's just so much more. And that's going to be so great. So thank you, timing of the universe. Yeah. Wait, do you guys have anything? Um, reading reading through it this time was actually a little bit different for me because the last, I think the last time I read these books was Tolkien Club. Could be wrong. So, so the way that I was reading this time through was a little bit different because I wasn't book studies. So I didn't read all of the same chapters in the same sections that we've had before because we do a pretty consistent read through of these two chapters than these two chapters or whatever else um and so i, I think I, this time through i got different sets of chapters together just because of how i delayed my readings until the last possible minute and then did like four chapters at once sometimes sometimes um so that gave me some different connections between the chapters than what I'd gotten on my most recent read through. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. I think I also found it interesting because like saying the last time I'd read them was also for book study. Um, my first year up here. Um, and that was really interesting because this would be overall Overall, the fourth time I've read them through, I think. Maybe the fifth. Um, and every time, I guess, like, in the typical way, as you grow as a person, you know, you see different things um, in, in books. But the distinct difference between being a first-year English student um, oh, gosh. and a fourth-year English student, right? Um, and, like, having, having different skills, I guess, of analysis and different emphasis in a book. Like, I found, so you can't just, like, can't right on my head. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think I found this time that, like, I looked for, I was looking for different things than I had been looking for in past readings. Um, where I used, where in in past readings I used to look for things that make, like the epic passages, right? Like you're, I'm looking for when we talk about what our favorite part was. Like I'm looking for things that made me feel things, which is not a bad way to read a book. Um, and the Lord of the Rings books make me feel a lot of things, and that's great. Um. But there was a lot more emphasis in my reading this time on things that said things instead. Places where I was like, that's an interesting worldview to take or approach to take to a problem or way of looking at something. This is an interesting character because they are embodying certain, certain perspectives. And I hadn't read Lord of the Rings that way before. Um, with that kind of analysis in mind, um, and it, like, it, yeah, it does, it changes the way that you, that you read, and, like, a lot comes out of it, um, looking at 
what people say and how they respond to something as that overall that overall idea of like the worldview behind it and that underlies uh, Tolkien's characters and world. It's just been really exciting and fun. Yeah, I don't know. I like being this kind of student that I am and I'm excited about it and I had a lot of fun doing that. Delightful. Man, those were some some good takeaways. Um, I, I, I suppose reading The Lord of the Rings is a, is a very good thing to do. All right, um, so we have 15 minutes left. Good for the soul. Um, take that chicken noodle soup for the soul. Just read Lord of the Rings instead. Um, the, so we have 15 minutes left. Um, there's a few things we could possibly do. We could talk about overarching themes of the Lord of the Rings, but that's kind of all we do anyway. <laughs> this uh, is true. So... I, I'm not sure if that would be a particularly fruitful discussion. Um, it would just be Sophia sitting here saying trees uh, are people for 15 minutes. <laughs> um, yeah. Which I, I'm sure we would all love to love to go through that. Um, <laughs> or, or, we could, or, or, or we could do something else. Um, Is there anything that has been on your on your mind about the books that you've been dying to share and haven't had an opportunity to share before? I think I really want at one point in my life to read that story out loud to any to someone I care for. Like at the moment, the one that pops in my mind is my youngest brother, but it could be a partner, it could be a friend, it could be a child, it could be anyone. I really want to read that story out loud. I kind of started that way, like last year when we did the fellowship, like reading it out loud. It takes much more time, just warning you all. <laughs> but there's something very pleasurable and like, emotional when you when you hear it first and when you have to pay attention to the sentences like if you read it in your mind you can like as Sophia was saying you can skip through the landscape part you can do that if you're reading it out loud you have to pay attention to what the sentence is meaning so you pose at the right time you take your brace at the right time and you make sense to the person who it like I think last semester when we were talking about like Rohan and how he describes Rohan po poetically or poetically Tolkien wrote right his prose and that's really why I want to read it out loud because it's epic to read but 
it must be so epic to like read and listen to at the same time. I have a number of friends who first encountered the Lord of the Rings by being kids on road trips and their one of their parents reading it to them during the road trip. Um which is pretty awesome. So just saying that's that's an option in the future. I mean it almost happened with my family. Uh but the thing is that France is not big enough to have world trips that makes you read through the whole three books. Um unfortunately <laughs> we did started to do that and we were lucky enough to be seven in the car. Like if you take the drive out, so like six people who could read. Um, and so avoid the motion sickness by passing the books through to people who hadn't read when you were like literally sick of reading. But again, the road trip was not long enough because France is tiny. <laughs> mm -hmm. Want to read it in French again to see how they did it with the translation. Oh yeah, that would be great. In French. Honestly, like honestly, the thing is that I have some bilingual friends uh, like who are like Anglophones but no French. And when they heard about like because like some of the names have been translated, like yeah. Strider, for example, yeah. and they're losing it on it. Like and I'm like can I go back to French and like not lose it on it? Or like, will it throw me off entirely because they keep making freaking jokes about it? Or will I just be like, yes, obviously, it's And like, and also because recently, apparently, uh, they retranslated it. So some of the names have changed. Oh. Do you know how recently? Do you know how recently? Because I have at least one of them in French and I've read them in French, but it was like 10 years ago. It must be in the past, past five years. I, I can try to find it again, like find which article told me they had been retranslated and who translated it again. So I can tell you like, I can do like some research on it and like tell you, but yeah. Um, sure. Some things have changed, and I've seen some comparison of like translation. I'm like, I like the old one better, and in some time, I like the new one better. So I'm like, I want to match them together. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, that's one of the things I really want to do now. That would uh, like looking at Tolkien in terms of translations is really really interesting because there's, um, because I read them when I was too little to really appreciate translation choices. So, like, I remember the names, some of which were, like, yeah, reasonable, like, it's it's translated pretty literally, and some of which just made sense but bothered me. Like, the fact that, like, like Frodo and Bilbo are, like, like they've added the end to the end, like, it's mm -hmm. Frodo. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that being so distracting. Um, but, but at any rate, like, Tolkien is really interesting to look at from a translation perspective, part like also because he wrote a translation guide oh yeah and it's really interesting um because he lays out like a lot of the etymologies of the names and he talks about like which names come from invented translations and ought to be left and which names come from english and therefore ought to be translated so that's really cool too
Yeah, it's actually pretty thick. Like, um... I need to find the book now. I want to know. It's just really, it's really interesting, all of his translation guidelines and um, how he lays everything out for people to, to do. And it's, it's honestly an unreasonable amount of work for any normal translator. <laughs> yeah, but like, please... you're translating Lord of the Rings. <laughs> well, yeah, now, now it's okay. Now that it's so popular. I have, I have only the two towers in French, but this is what it looks like. <laughs> wow. It's rough. Mm -hmm. I'm loving the green witch king on the back. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no, it's, I think it's an orc. Okay. Oh my god, Paul Eugenio. Okay, sorry. Like, I have like a love story with this like publisher. It's like I love their books for some reason. Like some of the best book I read during my like middle school and high school from them, and I'm like, oh, it's been so long I've seen them. Anyway, <clears throat> yeah, that's one of the things I want to do. Maybe. I've also okay. Speaking of French translations, though, like I thought it was really interesting that actually that maybe maybe I do have the older translation because. This one calls the Fellowship of the Ring um, La Communauté de l'Anneau. Mm -hmm. um, but I recently saw something online that was calling it the Fraternité de l'Anneau, which is yes. literally the Brotherhood of the Ring. Jordan said new, uh, new translation published the 2014 to 2016. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. So yeah, I do have the old one, which is wild. They changed it from the Community of the Ring to the Brotherhood of the Ring. <laughs> Okay, I found back what I was looking for. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the new... Okay, no, anyway. But... Uh, so the old translator is named Francis Ledoux, and the new one is Daniel Lozon. And what the fuck? <laughs> like some, some I understand and some are really cool, but like some are like, what the fuck? Why would you tell me like that? <laughs> ah. Like like the new translation keeps Frodo as Frodo, not Frodon. Um, but instead of Frodon Sake, it's Frodo the Sack. And I'm like, the nanny, what? <laughs> it's it's so bad that you have to be annoyed at it in Japanese. I'm so happy. I mean, nothing will ever be as bad as um, which language was it? Finnish? No, 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 the Swedish. The Swedish one that pissed off Tolkien because he understood what the translation and it was not appropriate to him. <laughs> yeah, that one's a beautiful story. I love it. Have we told Katie the Swedish translator story? Oh yeah, we. No, I don't think so. No, I've never heard this. Oh my god. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so. <laughs> Who's not going on it? <laughs> I mean, you should tell the Swedish. I translator should tell the story. Swedish... You know. Okay. You know oh gosh. So I don't remember the details, and I should go into the project that I did on like Tolkien reception or the Hobbit reception studies specifically to find my sources because then I'll send them to you and they're really funny but okay okay here's the thing so uh the first Swedish translation of Tolkien is 
infamously bad. It was translated by a guy who was talented, but incredibly fucking full of himself. Mm. Um, and oh. it was really full. Like his previous translation credits had included like the Kalevala and the like King James Bible and like the Quran. And so, yeah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, so he was really full of himself. Um, and... The, the, the thing is, the way this puts it is, like, he he had a good grasp of Swedish, but he didn't have a great grasp of English. <laughs> um, so a lot of the time, like, he would translate things, like slightly wrong like slightly wrong in the sense of not realizing that gladden is a synonym for iris and translating it as like the happy marsh or something like that well um or like rivendell ends up being like riverdale or something like that riverdale which everybody who like has written a bad fan fiction at the age of 13 has called rivendell anyways <laughs> except a professional translator Right. Um, so it's like full of mistakes like that um but also like one of the things with this guy is that he he kind of went rampant with Tolkien's style like where Tolkien is quite like direct and sparse he he felt like he clearly felt like it didn't sound epic enough oh, no. um so they show like two examples of this side by side um and it's like the original is like, you know, there, there's the dialogue and the dialogue tag is Aragorn shouted. Um, and the Swedish is Aragorn thundered in a commanding voice. Um, Epic. So it's, like, okay. so it's, it's full of like him taking liberties with the style um, and it like him making a lot of mistakes um oh, to the point that like tolkien actually complained tolkien was like look my swedish isn't great but i have a swedish dictionary and even i can tell that this is a mess oh. um and he wrote about it in one of his letters um yes. and then this translator yeah <laughs> to alan and unwin but okay um, here, here's the thing. This translator, like, continued to insist that he was, like, completely correct and, like, started to feud with Tolkien. Um, because, like, not only... So he was the first Swedish translator of Tolkien. He later, like, went on to brag about the fact that he'd written, like, the first biography of Tolkien. Um, but this biography was, like was about it contained like a lot of really insane claims like the fact that tolkien was a nazi sympathizer and like i don't know he and c.s lewis were in a cult or something like yes, it was any number of things also anyway, he blamed the tolkien society for burning down his house yeah so that wasn't in his that was not in his biography but um he just like continued to descend deeper and deeper into this like Tolkien is an evil mastermind rabbit hole as he went insane throughout his later life um, to, to the point that um, he, like, when his house burned down, he blamed uh, like, the, Tolkien, the society. Tolkien society. And it was 
but all of his stuff was like people in the Tolkien society are like doing oh, witchcraft, right? right. Connections with the occult or whatever. Right. He he wrote right. Okay, he wrote about how the Tolkien society was like literally the Illuminati and was like a world cult practicing witchcraft and like supporting Nazis and yeah, blame them for burning down his house. Epic. Crazy. Did you guys not know that we're part of um? Uh, the the real life Illuminati. Come this on, we're we part of a cult. Yeah, this is we one of the we OG. Of like we are a cult <laughs> set of references. The OG OG reference is, is Joseph and Joseph and burning. Oh, oh burning right. hobby horses in quad. Yeah, the OG reference is burning the hobby horses in quad. But which was me and Rick. You have me and Rick to thank for the uh, entire We Are Not a Cult saga of inside jokes. And a little bit of jokes. Um, so it's two o'clock. Quick question for you. What do you want to do next week? Because technically we would still have book study next week and there remain all of the appendices. Yeah. I think we so, should read them all and talk about them all. I agree. I don't actually... Okay. Way too much. Darn. Th that was what I was considering, was reading them all and talking about them all. So, um... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think we should read them all for next week. Oh, yeah, like, that? I don't... I honestly don't think we should feel ourselves <laughs> bound by the semester, considering. Yeah, I think we should just continue going, like, forever and read the appendices in it is a reasonable full hundred chunks. pages. Okay, yeah, no, 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 we're not reading all of that for next week. I just I meant, wanted to point that out. Sorry, I meant we should read all of them, but like over the course of several weeks. <laughs> We've still got oh, a see. Perilous Realm left anyways. Oh so. yeah, Perilous Realm is going to go on until we feel like ending it. Okay. Sounds Even good. Appendix A is very, very long. It is 50 pages. Yeah, the, my original plan was to read Appendix A for one week and then the rest of the appendices for the next. But the problem with that is like... how much? No, do it like one a week at minimum. C um, can you get can you get two hours of content out of talking about the Shire calendar and languages? Uh, okay, maybe, but for in the meantime, uh, for next week, can we read Appendix A Part 1? Because that's only 30 pages. Oh, okay. Appendix sure. A is 50 pages. Yes, it is. It's too much to do in one week. And there really is a ton going on. Yeah, there's a shit ton. Like, the entire story of Aragorn is only in the first part. Oh, Sounds like, good. The semester is still ending, and, like, a lot of things are due at the moment. So, like, around next week. So, yay. Yeah, I like the idea we don't do all of it. A. Cool. Well, this is exactly why I brought it up. Wonderful. Um, so yeah, Appendix A, Part 1 for next week. Um, okay, so that uh, stops at the House of Aeoral? Yes. Yeah, Part 2 is the okay. House of Aeoral. Yeah. Okay. Coolio. Um, talk to you all on Wednesday. Or, that's not true, talk to you all tonight. Tonight? At 6 o'clock. To learn how to swear in Elvish. <sighs> That's yeah. See you then. See you. So long, everybody.